Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK centric on the big issues of the day. So, Peter, here we are again having another conversation. And the reason for that is that the markets are becoming very fast moving and very interesting. In the last few days, we've had some news about the banking sector, which is potentially quite troubling. And we are going to be doing the Moses and Methuselah podcast more regularly in future, once every two weeks on average, because there is so much to talk about. So let's dive straight into what's happened. Since we last spoke, which was only about a week ago, we've had news of a significant bank failure in the US, Silicon Valley Bank, and a couple of other lenders have also gone out of business. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank was rescued effectively by the regulators. And then as of yesterday, we're recording this on March the 16th, uh, we heard the news that Credit Suisse, the troubled Swiss bank, has uh, had to reach out to the authorities, to the central bank in Switzerland for some help in restoring confidence in that particular bank. So what's going on here, Peter? We've had trouble in the banks. Is this a rerun of uh, 2008? Jonathan, it's nice to be here now and discuss these very difficult things that are going on. I knew that you would ask that question, and it is a difficult one to answer. I've asked it myself quite a lot. I think there are certain things that are happening today which wouldn't have happened if the American regulators, when they rearranged the banking system through the Dodd-Frank Act, which in my opinion was a very big mistake, if they'd done it properly, instead of concentrating on the wrong things, then we probably wouldn't be here. We need to differentiate, Jonathan, between what's going on in the US and what's going on in Europe, because there are two very different scenarios. And I think it's probably not a coincidence that uh, Credit Suisse and SBV have both hit the screens in the same week. It's probably not a coincidence. But nonetheless, the two backgrounds are very different. If I can just tell you my thoughts in a nutshell, as far as the US is concerned, then I would say that the Dodd-Frank Act, which was put in place, I think, in 2009, by these two senators, both of them very left-wing, especially Frank, the result was, number one, that the reserves and the stress tests in the US banking system needed to be addressed again. And they increased the required reserves of the banking system. That in itself is not too bad. But the second thing they did, which in my opinion was completely stupid, is that they curtailed the bank's ability to enact proprietary trading. In other words, to trade the markets with their own reserves. And um, although the first thing that I mentioned was good because it did make the bank stronger and they're in a stronger position today than they were then, Nonetheless, curtailing the proprietary trading activities was a very stupid measure put in place by non-practicing politicians. And obviously what happened is if you smother one part of the market, then you'll find that that part re-emerges somewhere else. And it did with a vengeance in the hidden corners of the so-called shadow banking system, which is by far not as regulated as the banks. And therefore, if you want, the market-making activities disappeared under the radar screen. And that's a little bit the problem 
that we have today. What they didn't do, and then I'm very keen to hear your thinking on this, what the regulators didn't do and should have done was to prevent or to limit the mismatching of assets and liabilities that is carried on all over the place in the US and beyond, whereby the banks borrow short term and lend long term. And of course, when the yield curve flattens and invert, they take a terrible hit. And that's exactly what happened in the Silicon Valley Bank, John. Okay, well, going back to Dodd-Frank is going back some way. I think it's worth making the point that what's happened with Silicon Valley Bank is slightly different from what happened to the banks before the global financial crisis, when it was their lending practices that were the, the problem. They were lending and speculating with the assets they held. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank is slightly different from that, isn't it, in the sense that, that their problem is not that they were lending money uh, imprudently, but that their balance sheet basically got into real trouble because people were yanking money out of their bank because either they needed to if they were venture capitalists or the companies they were backing, the tech funds they were backing, or it was simply a, a run on the bank as it later became customers were withdrawing their cash. And the problem was on the other side of the balance sheet, they had so much money in government bonds whose value was declining very fast as a result of the Federal Reserve yanking up uh, interest rates to fight off inflation. So they had this kind of squeeze going on in their balance sheet. So it wasn't necessarily the fact that they were, I mean, they weren't an investment bank anyway, and they weren't actually trading at the time. So I don't think that was the immediate cause of the problems at uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, but you're right about the fact that, as so often happens, the reaction to the global financial crisis, the regulation that came in, has changed the way that banking works and therefore increased the risk of other types of problem, like the one we've just seen. So I think there is a relationship there. And uh, it's pretty much been inevitable that this would happen at some point, that you would get the squeeze on banks, because at some point, if you let the monetary policy get out of control, you let interest rates stay negative for so long, you let inflation run riot, at some point, there's going to be a reckoning. And that has had a significant impact on a number of banks, particularly because of the assets they hold. These government bonds are no longer as risk-free as they are alleged to be. Would you not agree with that? You know very well that I agree with that. In fact, you and I have been discussing this for ages, why the US government bond market should automatically and without discussion be considered as risk-free. I think what you also need to add in your arguments, which is unfortunately a very prevailing attitude by depositors, is that bank depositors and bank account holders don't realize that they are lending their money to the bank. And on your personal balance sheet, your bank account appears as an asset. And on the bank's balance sheet, it appears as a liability. You don't know what it's doing with your bank. It's unsecured. And when they feel like it, they give you negative rates of interest. And they certainly don't catch up with the central bank's increase in interest rates. And I think that maybe now, in fact, I'm sure that depositors and customers of banks now realize that actually it's not at all a risk-free proposition either the banking system. Otherwise, they wouldn't have withdrawn their deposits so quickly overnight. Incidentally, of course, there are two ironies here. First of all, I gather that if you're sitting on unrealized paper losses worth billions, you don't need to mark them to market until and unless you sell one bond. At the moment you sell one bond, the whole thing gets marked to market. You remember as well as I do that this whole discussion about marking to market was a very controversial subject at the last global financial crisis. And the Europeans and the Americans have a slightly different attitude to all this. But you can now see that that really brings home 
the risk of what happens. The second irony is that, in fact, the bond prices that got hammered until very recently have now exploded and the yields have completely collapsed from the level where they were only 10, 15 days ago, which, of course, as usual, was the result of short coverings by hedge funds who have now lost millions on their shorts. They lost millions. And if the bond prices two, three weeks ago or more were where they are today, you might have avoided this chain reaction resulting in a run on the bank. So maybe this whole subject of marking to market will come back to the fore and we will find solutions. Can I just tell you, before you take over, I found something very, well, entertaining, if I can use that word. Mr. Barney Frank, who is the Frank of Dodd-Frank, a very left-wing politician, I think he was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, he um, went into retirement in 2015. And guess what he did? He joined the board of Signature Bank, which was one of the three banks that went down this week. And so I find that highly ironic. And um, you can listen to him squirming and, and justifying his position on the board and so on. So one does feel a little bit sorry for him, but that's in brackets, Jonathan. I don't think you sound very sorry for him, actually, to be fair, <laughs> Peter. And uh, it is, of course, a delicious irony, perhaps something to savour while the rest of us battle with the, the reality of what is unfolding. I think on the point of the banks and depositors, I mean, there's two things to say there, I think. Number one is it's entirely natural that uh, depositors who have money in the bank have been taking their money out of the bank because, as you say, the banks don't raise interest rates to match what's going on in the market. And they've been putting them into money market funds and so on. And so they're taking away their deposits from the bank at the same time as the value of the assets the bank holds, the, uh, the government bonds and so on, have also been falling, as you say. So it is a dynamic that is going to continue. And it's entirely logical for people to behave that way. Though, of course, the second point is a lot of depositors are protected by deposit insurance. And in fact, I think something like 90% of deposits are in fact covered by insurance of one form or another, whether by the federal authorities in the US or by uh, the governments and regulators over here in Europe. But of course, the problem with Silicon Valley Bank is that a lot of those, because they had a lot of hedge funds and venture capitalists and big tech companies with, with deposits there, they hadn't realized that they weren't properly insured or they hadn't diversified enough. They all just thought this bank was, was wonderful and everybody else was in it. There was a kind of herd impact. We've got to be at the trendy bank, as it were. And so they suddenly woke up to the fact that they could actually lose their money if they didn't yank it out pretty quickly. And that, of course, precipitated the crisis. I mean, the big issue, I think, is given what's happened... We haven't yet talked about Credit Suisse and where they are, but uh, let's leave that just for a moment. I mean, the big issue that comes out of this is what are the central banks going to do now? Because they've got a dilemma. Inflation is still running high. It is coming down, but it's still running high. And they're on this course. They've committed themselves or they're making noises. They've committed themselves to keeping raising interest rates to choke off inflation. But now they've got these, uh, if you like, financial stability concerns to wrestle with as well. Their other obligation. And they've got to decide now that the European Central Bank is meeting uh, today and they've got to decide whether to carry on with increasing their interest rates despite what's happened to Credit Suisse. And the Fed next week is going to have the same dilemma. So here we are yet again with the markets wrestling with trying to work out whether the central banks are going to carry on doing what they said they were going to do or whether they're going to change course. So perhaps you might tell us what you think, you know, as a European, I'm not a greatest fan of the European Central Bank, I'm sure, uh, what do you think they're going to do and how are they going to deal with this uh, Credit Suisse situation? 
I think we definitely have to talk about the Credit Suisse situation because it's on the front page of every paper and it's being discussed in every serious boardroom. But before we move over to Europe, there's just one thing I want to say regarding what you said about the Federal Reserve. I find it very, to put it politely, strange that barely five days ago, you had Chairman Powell making a speech and then answering questions over 48 hours by the banking committee, whatever it is. And he was as hawkish as ever. The comments were all the same the next day that uh, he really knows what he's doing and he's going to conquer inflation and he will succeed and so on and so forth. But the next day, Jonathan, the Silicon Valley Bank blew up the next day. So did he not know about it or did he know about it and mislead his audience, his listeners? Or thirdly, does he not, after all, as hard as he tries, have the competence to do what he's trying to do? That's the the first point. The second point, which we can cover maybe in the next podcast, but which really gave me a lot of pause for thought, is that if you go back six months to the travails and the debacle in the gilts market in the UK and the sterling crisis as a result of Liz Truss's short tenure and her wretched Chancellor of the Exchequer, the result of what they did or said they would do was a sterling crisis and the guilt yields absolutely exploded. And then the Bank of England had to come in and buy the bonds and resort to the market maker or the, if you like, the buyer of last resort. Now, fast forward six months to this week and to the Silicon Valley Bank. What happened there? you had an absolute explosion of bond prices and a collapse in bond yields, which had a lot of people, including myself, scratching their head and wondering why six months ago, the guilt yields exploded. And six months later, the US government bond prices exploded, sending yields down. The only conclusion I can have before we move on to Europe is that six months ago, everything from interest rate expectations to inflation numbers, inflation expectations, and the rest of it, were still pointing upwards firmly, were firmly pointing upwards. But six months later, for all sorts of reasons that we've covered in the past, the bond yields and the expectations have collapsed. I mean, look at the interest rate expectations in the UK, for example, and compare them with just one week ago or two weeks ago, let alone three months ago. And my conclusion is the reason why the bond prices exploded and sent the yields down is because these expectations are now firmly pointing downwards rather than upwards. And so the bond market is doing the central bank's job for them. And in this clash of the titans, as we've called it before, this round is being won by the bond markets. So if you want to say something about that, I hope you do. Otherwise, we'll move over to Europe. No, I would like to say something about that. I mean, I think this is one of the nonsenses about the world in which we live in and the way that financial observers, shall we say, and market participants put such faith in what the bond market prices are telling us, because you're right, and over time, 
if you like, the wisdom of the bond market comes through over time. But in the short term, it's been absolutely ludicrous. Their expectations are all over the place. And now that may be because the bond markets have been manipulated by central banks. I'm sure that's part of it. They have been trying to manipulate the yield curve and so on. I'm sure that's part of it. But, you know, if you put your faith in what the bond market is telling us, they've been all over the place for uh, the biggest shift in uh, expectations since the start of last year that we've ever seen. And uh, they don't seem able to make up their mind. And I think... To my mind, the lesson is slightly different from the one you're drawing. To my mind, uh, what we're seeing is a series of, if you like, kind of underwater explosions. And they're just, we're seeing signs of things coming to the surface. And there are going to be more of them, I'm afraid. I don't see that this is the end of the story. I mean, if you think back to the global financial crisis, there is a similarity in this sense that we had the Bear Stearns collapse. We had Northern Rock crisis, both of which came a year before uh, the Lehman Brothers collapse. And they were signs of what was happening in the system. And I have to say, I'm rather concerned that what we're seeing now is signs that there is a lot of other trouble coming along. And you're right. Eventually, the bond market seems to have worked that out and is now saying that things are not going to go the way that many people thought uh, only a few months ago. And uh, there's going to be more trouble. And so I think that probably does presage further gain in bond prices. But the question then is, what's going to happen to inflation? Whether inflation actually is going to be dragged down by that process itself of the economy slowing down and other problems coming to the surface, or whether we're going to be left, the price of, of sorting out these problems that are emerging, whether that's at Silicon Valley Bank or the UK gilts market and the pension funds involvement in that, whether we find out that actually the only way we can deal with that is to uh, take measures that actually allow inflation to carry on. So I think that central banks are facing a very tough dilemma. And it's not clear to me that we're going to come out of it the other end uh, with what we want, which is inflation licked and the banking system stabilised. I don't see that that's necessarily a given yet. I don't know whether you agree with that. I partly agree. Before I tell you why I partly agree, I've noted that in the past, whenever you have a change of direction of markets, doesn't matter which markets, currency, shares, bonds, the first stage around that change of direction is effectively a technical. It, it's governed by technicalities like short coverings and what volatility. We've seen this in the bond markets. Um, and the longer the bond yields refuse to go back up, the footing is more solid on which it rests. You said a minute ago that you're worried by what you see. And I tell you that I'm worried by what I see, but I'm even more worried by what I don't see. And that what we don't see is what's going on under the surface. You have, after all, thousands and thousands of banks that we've never heard of, regional banks and so on. And they all have interbank lending and credit facilities with each other. And as happens usually at a time like this, behind the scenes, and we don't normally notice it, you get the top management of the banks telling their staff to withdraw the credit limit for so-and-so bank. And that's what happened incidentally yesterday when a BNP Paribas told their people to stop trading in derivatives of Credit Suisse, but we'll come on to that in a second. And so if you have a general withdrawal of credit facilities, to me, that is evidently deflationary. And if you've got three major banks in the US getting out of the picture, disappearing from the picture, all that is deflationary. And so if in six months it turns out that the peak of inflation will have happened roughly at this time, then we will conclude, you and I, that actually the bond market has turned out to have been right in how it is behaving right now. But if you want, we can move over to Europe, 
What are your sentiments when you look at what's happened in Credit Suisse? Okay, well, I mean, what's happened to Credit Suisse, let's be clear, is that the shares of Credit Suisse Bank have fallen dramatically. They've, I think they've fallen by more than 90% since their peak before the global financial crisis. The bank seems to be a, I don't know, I, I don't want to be impolite, but it seems to be at the wrong end of all the kind of things that you'd expect from a bank. It has been lending to very dodgy people. It's just announced that it's found material weaknesses in its internal financial reporting. It's been involved in a variety of scandals of circumvention sanctions and so on have been fined several times. I mean, the whole thing seems to be a bit of a cesspit, frankly, and has been for some time, uh, which is somewhat surprising for a Swiss bank. It's not quite what you uh, associate with the concept of a Swiss bank. So there is some specific issues around Credit Suisse that I think have, have been there for a long time, but it is having ramifications elsewhere around the system as well, as you pointed out, because if other banks stop trading with it or or have worries about its credit, that will then have a knock-on effect. And it is too big to fail. This is a bank that is too big to fail. So it has to be essentially supported or bailed out by the authorities. There's no question about that. Now, the question is, can what's happened yesterday with the uh, Swiss uh, central banker saying it's going to lend it money and support it if need be, uh, whether that's going to be sufficient to stem the tide, I don't know. I'm not familiar with the internal workings of Credit Suisse, but I do know that it is potentially a very worrying development, uh, but one to which the bank has been heading for some time. I mean, I cannot see that there's something rotten at the heart of Credit Suisse. And, uh, you know, in an ideal world, that would be cauterized by um, the bank being uh, sorted out, maybe even disappearing, taken over by somebody else or whatever. But uh, maybe I've got a rather dyspeptic view about uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, I don't know whether you'd agree with that. But, um, you know, it's there and the authorities have got to deal with it. And not only is it there, not only do the authorities have to deal with it, but did you know, and I didn't, that the total assets of Credit Suisse are the equivalent of two-thirds of Swiss GDP? Two-thirds. So talk about too big to fail. Talk about a systemic risk, I would say, uh, most definitely. You are quite right that that bank has been plagued by all these things that you mentioned and by corruption and um, by mismanagement. And you could see that because every couple of years they change the top management, the chairman and the CEO, and then new people arrive. And then as soon as you start getting used to them, some new scandal comes out and they're replaced by someone else. I think, however, that last year, generally speaking, the generally accepted view when interest rates started to go up was that this is good for banks. It doesn't matter whether it's in Europe or the UK or the US, it's generally good for banks because when their own reserves with their own central bank are earning interest or when interest rates go up, they can be very slow in passing on these interest rates to their customers. We've seen that. It's happening before our eyes. Although rates have gone up by 4% or so, as a depositor, you still, certainly in Swiss francs, you still suffer negative interest rate effects. But for those people like you and I who think long term, we've been around for a long time and we know that the best results for investing are those that are achieved over the long term. Um, I've asked to see a chart for the share price of Credit Suisse in the last 25 years. I haven't seen it yet, but I suspect that what I will see is that over the past 25 years, in nominal terms, you have low single-digit returns. Over 25 years, total return, low single-digit. And in real terms, adjusted for inflation, you've taken a real-time hit of something like 40% 
of your investment when you started investing it. Now, if that isn't what I call a permanent loss of capital, then I would invite anyone to show me what is more of a permanent loss of capital, because the chances of you re-earning that permanent loss of capital are practically zero. And when you look at the headwinds that the banking industry suffers from, they're always the same. They come in various guises, but they're not in control of their destiny like other businesses are. So I wouldn't like to be a central bank. We'll see what the ECB does today. We'll see what the Fed, who furthermore, as soon as the the Silicon Valley Bank scandal broke, they went into a silence, into a silence period. So not only did they not seem to know about this last week, but also now they can't comment on it because they, they have to keep silent. So all eyes will be on the European Central Bank. But don't forget, there again, they're learning on the job. The top people in these banks, most of them, not all of them, are learning on the job. And I think that is probably quite worrying for us practitioners, Jonathan. Well, I can only (laughs) agree with you. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the problem, particular problem for the ECB, the European Central Bank, is that whether or not you think what the Fed has done is right so far uh, in terms of its campaign against inflation, the European Central Bank is some way behind that. And they've got also specific issues arising from the impact of the invasion of Ukraine to deal with, which has had a negative impact on Germany and other big of the economies in Europe, a more marked impact on Europe than the US itself. So they've got a lot of issues to weigh. And uh, you're right, it doesn't particularly inspire confidence. Whatever you think, again, of the Federal Reserve, they can actually kind of move quite quickly. The European Central Bank doesn't tend to do things very quickly. It tends to be behind the curve a little bit. Uh, and it's headed by um, a lady for whom you don't have a particular lot of time, I think, Peter. But uh, never mind that. I think they've got a very difficult problem what to do. And I think, you know, either way, they're sort of damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. And that's because we've allowed this situation to develop. I mean, I can only go back to this point that I think what tends to happen is you have a crisis like 2008, then you have a a reaction, the policy reaction, we must never allow that to happen again. So you introduce a whole series of measures after the stable door has been opened, um, and then you create further problems down the line. And in this case, it's been absolutely transparent and inevitable that we're going to have these problems by holding down interest rates and going on doing QE and doing all these things for so long. You say, well, the Federal Reserve's got it wrong. Yes, I agree. Uh, But so too has the European Central Bank. They have been very slow, very reluctant to acknowledge the possibility of inflation getting out of control. And they're reaping the consequences of that, as are all central banks. It's been a collective failure, which is very explicable, I think, in behavioral terms. The way that the world is, you tend to push off a problem until you, you know, as long as you can. But now we're going to reap the reward. Well, we'll see what the European Central Bank does tomorrow. I imagine they will do some kind of slowing down with what they were proposing to do before. I imagine that's what they will do. Uh, but if so, that's only again going to re- reignite concerns. But what are they worried about? They're worried about the banking system. They're worried about all these other issues we've talked about. So, yeah, I'm afraid we're in for, I think, a kind of worrisome time. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm now going to say something which will surprise you, which is that I actually do defend Madame Christine Lagarde and the European Central Bank people because they don't have the influence over what really needs to happen in Europe and fail to happen, will continue to fail to happen. And as long as it doesn't happen, the problem will not go away. And that is a proper, fully-fledged banking union and a capital markets union and all the things that go with it. And after the sovereign debt crisis of 10 years ago, the banks in Europe pulled in their horns in the sense 
that they didn't buy non-local government bonds. So, for example, the Italian institutions didn't buy French bonds and the German institutions certainly didn't buy Spanish bonds. And that step, which really, really needs to happen, has still not happened. And that, unfortunately, or whatever, that's the fact, is not in the remit of the central bank. That's the politicians. And because 90% of the politicians in Europe are weaklings and second rate, I don't see very much happening on that front, unfortunately. So you think that if we did have banking union, all the rest of it, that the uh, European Central Bank would have certainly behaved differently. But is there any uh, reason to believe that they would have been any more successful than the Federal Reserve in uh, dealing with the kind of issues that they're dealing with? You've been bit down on the Federal Reserve. But would they not make the same mistakes even if they had those powers available to them? No doubt they would have done. And uh, you've cornered me a little bit there, but you're probably right. But at least maybe they might have been able to take more of a pan-European backstop approach, if you like. Because look what the, some call it a stitch up for the Silicon Valley Bank has produced. The Federal Reserve have placed at the disposal of those banks an unlimited line of credit, which would cover the non-insured depositors that have deposits above and beyond $250,000. So they are all covered. But the backstop behind that is that the Federal Insurance Deposit Insurance Corporation, which has got to be a, a governmental body, has taken on the management of these failed banks. And you could therefore argue that the ultimate backstop is a governmental backstop, despite the fact that there are pains to tell them, uh, President Biden, you know, he's at pains to announce that the nasty banking shareholders and the nasty banking bondholders, of course, are not going to be bailed out. They're going to suffer the losses. But the hallowed taxpayer, of course, his money is safe and it's not being covered by them, which is, of course, complete nonsense, because, of course, it is the ultimate taxpayer. But be that as it may. But you don't have the ability in Europe for politicians to make these kind of statements because the basics are missing, capital markets union and um, fiscal union as well, and so on and so forth. So that's as far as I can see the differences. So just finally then, what do we think is going to happen from now on? I mean, that's the sort of question. And if you're an investor, what can you do? It is a worrying time because, of course, I'm sure in the short term, markets will stabilize. They have stabilized a little bit while the, they've released. The markets have discovered that the authorities are there. They're at least now noticed that something is going wrong. And that may steady the ship for a while. But the underlying question is, which you raised earlier, is what is going to happen to bond yields, basically? Are they going to continue to uh, come down? recognizing that we are in a deflationary impulse now. Uh, but if we are in that impulse, that will bring inflation down as well, you'd think. But what's going to happen to the economy as a result of all that? Uh, we've already seen if, if the banks now have to tighten their lending criteria, which they will do, I think, because of what's happened, then we're going to see uh, other people run into trouble. Companies that have been imprudent are going to run into trouble. Their credit is going to be withdrawn. We're going to see a, a general contraction. It will be deflationary, uh, as you say. And that unfortunately, will mean that unemployment will start to go up, that the economies will start to grow less rapidly than they would otherwise do. So we may beat inflation, but we may beat inflation by uh, having a very nasty recession rather than beating it by monetary policy. I hope it doesn't get as bad as that, and maybe they can manage their way through that. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, that is not a particularly uh, positive outlook. 
Yeah. So on a final note, I think you've put your finger exactly on the problem, um, which is the difference in the well-being of, of Wall Street and the well-being of Main Street. So my conclusion is that Main Street has got a hard time ahead. As you mentioned, unemployment going up, bankruptcies and all that that's going to happen. So the Main Streeters, who, by the way, last year had a pretty good run, all in all, there was no recession. Um, yes, there was a cost of living crisis, so it wasn't that good a run. But at the time, of course, Wall Street had a horrible time last year. So Main Street is likely to be suffering a lot, more or less a lot, whereas Wall Street is going to benefit from a thick wall of worry, which it can climb up and pushed up by bond yields, which are going to be drifting lower. I don't know how quickly. Once the short coverers have been flushed out, and I saw there were some nasty hedge fund headlines recently, once that is cleared, I think, since you asked me the question, that there is further scope for bond yields to stabilize or even go down, for the yield curve to normalize, and therefore for a modicum of normality to return to the banking industry. Well, let's have you right. As I say, it's very easy to overreact to these dramatic news that happens. Well, we've seen that in the past. But the other point I think to bear in mind is the one that I think we both alluded to, which is that when these things happen, they have short-term consequences and they often create a lot of headlines and indeed a bit of panic and some losses for people. But uh, more concerning is what's happening underneath the surface and whether or not these things we've been seeing are symptomatic of some much wider problems, which will continue to appear over the next few months if we are right. That we, What we're seeing is not exactly a tip of the iceberg, but it's certainly indicative that there are some other stresses in the system which we need to see resolved before we know exactly where we're going. So on that note, Peter, we'll bring this particular podcast to an end. It's been quite an animated one, and I think it's very interesting uh, what's been going on in the banking system, and uh, may you live in interesting times. But let's hope the next time we speak, which will probably be in about a fortnight, unless something even more dramatic happens in the meantime, we'll look forward to um, seeing how this all plays out. I look forward to that. Thank you very much, Jonathan. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.